So, you know, this this is part of what we were talking about when I say we have to be really careful who we rally around. Isn't that mob justice? Well, that's that's what it was. Uh, and, you know, I hate to say that, but when you're looking at entire sections of your community that are boarded up and all these business owners putting out, we support Black Lives Matter when they probably had never heard of it before <laughs> on their businesses, right? That tells you something. Yeah. Right. And, and again, it was a situation where the police were executing a search warrant on someone who was connected with a larger drug operation. Breonna Taylor, no, no offense here, but she was somebody who had been supporting Glover's drug activity in the local community for years. Uh, what does outlying, outlawing no-knock warrants actually mean? That's, that's our, our underlying uh, question there, uh, just the same. And, um, and then search warrant task force. Um, I, I believe there's there's something going on with that as well. Uh, so if you if you can kind of uh, elaborate on on the new and Department of Justice indictment and tell us what this all means. Well, I, I tell you, it's actually a, a great place to start dealing with the no knock warrants, because that's kind of the foundation for everything that's happening, both with the uh, attorney general's search warrant task force. And certainly with the new DOJ indictment against the officers involved in uh, the Breonna Taylor incident. Uh, in, in terms of the no-knock warrant, what outlawing those means essentially is that officers will do what many of us in the community, in the legal community, and certainly in the uh, political uh, action communities have said, is to notify citizens when you're actually going to execute a warrant. That's really, it's nothing more than a notification process. When the officers arrive at the location for the search, they have to try and let people who are present at the search know that there are officers present and that they have authority to come and execute a warrant. Now, you would think that that would be something that would be routine, that it, it would be expected, that you'd notify people that you have the presence of law enforcement and that law enforcement is going to do something as invasive as a search, whether that's a residence or a business or whatever the location of the search. But that hasn't always been the case. And in the situation with Breonna Taylor, you saw that it resulted in very tragic uh, circumstances. It, it was a situation where the officers had been authorized to enter under a no-knock provision uh, there is some dispute between the officers, certainly, and, and members of the community as to whether or not they announced themselves. But whatever the circumstances, it resulted in private citizens using force against police officers, police officers returning force, and it resulted in the death of, of um, someone who was present at the scene who, but for the lack of notification, uh, would probably be alive today. So, so that's really the basis for the no-knock, is to say, let's let citizens know what's going on and give everybody an opportunity to cooperate with law enforcement. There is a question of whether or not the officers actually went through and secured the information that they needed before approaching a judge to get authority to go into the home. And that's where you, you've got the real possibility of a conviction here. Uh, if, the, if the federal jury believes that those officers either fabricated or exaggerated information in that affidavit, they can convict. And in, in fact, in many cases, will. Wow. Okay. All right. So as we as we as we look at this, then um, 
this looks like this looks like justice, right? It it is it is the the opportunity for justice. It is. And what we're going to see right now is where the community places its primary interests. Uh, and by that, I mean this. The community depends on law enforcement for safety and protection. But we also have a right that uh, to expect that as individual citizens, we're going to be free from unwarranted and unreasonable government intrusions into our lives. Given the current climate in Metro Louisville, we're going to see a contest of ideas now. We're going to see where the community places its primary values. Is it on the need to feel safe and secure and have our government protect us? Or is it the, the expression of individual rights and individual liberties? Right now, it's unclear. We're, we're in the middle of a real ideological fight, folks. We're, we're debating everything from the right of women to control their own reproductive rights to the ability for us to hold uh, government officials accountable. So there's a real contest of ideas here. And honestly, I can't tell you how this case will come out because it's not it's not going to be based on the evidence. It's going to be based on how the community feels about the need to express itself within the larger uh, larger community and, and what message we want to send to our government. And, and I don't know what that message will be. So do you believe that um, do, do you believe that the the protesting um, you know as we're talking about messages being sent out to the outer community one thing we always say here on this show is that if the ADOS community American descendants of slaves or if the melanated community um, could focus on getting itself together and and be that great community for each other then we can be that that makes it better for the community at large so did the protesting help or hurt and and will future protesting in the midst of this trial and case help or hurt well I, I think in it's it's a mixed bag in the in the Taylor case uh, and I, and I'll be candid with you because I've been a critic early on about much of the response that the ADOS community provided to this case. Um, you know, historically, our community has been at the forefront of social protests. It is what got us through uh, the Reconstruction era and the Jim Crow era. And, and even up to the present day, still dealing with some of the, the distinction and differences in the way that our community is treated. So we've been at the forefront of protest. But what I think has happened in, in, in the Taylor case is that we, we have to be really careful about who we're going to rally around and who we're going to hold up as, as a victim of unwarranted government action. we got to be real clear on what role we think those individuals played in the incident that is leading to the protest. So the protests themselves were good in a way that they highlighted the fact that there is still concern among the community, the melanated community, about our relationship with the police and the government. It's always a good thing to put that on the table and talk about it because it's always been a historic problem for us. But if we're going to spend that social currency, we better do it on those individuals whose behavior and conduct is above reproach because it is too easy, too easy to completely dismiss the entire movement if you can criticize the person that you're holding up at the forefront of the movement. So, so I think it's a mixed bag. I think it was helpful that we had the protest, 
but again, I think we got to be real careful about who we're holding out as as martyrs. Uh, and and I and I think that there's a media machine out there that knows and understands that passion, and they they will will whip us into action in a sense. Um, uh, that was actually kind of dope to use that word, whip us into action. Um, You're right. They yeah. they whip us into action, and 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 we will jump out there, and and we will uh, uh, get out there, and, and and before all the facts are in, start start protesting and this is a situation where justice is is moving right along in what seems to be a positive manner and and we're we're actually getting somewhere and uh but the question is would we have gotten here without the 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 the, the pushing that we did and, and better days with peter hayes i know you had something to chime in on that well, yeah, I think Ramon makes a good point on the last um, point. You know, we're not talking about Rosa Parks and great heroes and sheroes. A lot of the recent cases are people involved in some nefarious behavior that the police overreacted and turned into a bad situation. So you don't have the double jeopardy implications because they're not trying the officers for the same uh, offense that they were tried under Kentucky law. Even though the, the, the arise out of the same situation and the same set of facts, you have different criminal statutes that are at play. So double jeopardy in and of itself won't won't apply here. They're they're not the federal government is not trying to prosecute them under state want endangerment laws. They're prosecuting them for violation of federal civil rights. So so we won't have the issue of whether there's double jeopardy in this case. You will have the question, however of whether or not we're running into an area where you have unchecked federal authority and the exercise of federal power. Well, I, I tell you, one of the things that, that I was really pleased about uh, was the fact that the attorney general had composed a search warrant task force that included the interests of a lot of different communities. Uh, and I was uh, honored to participate on behalf of the NAACP as a member of the task force. Uh, and actually be able to contribute to what turned out to be the final uh, recommendation and project that the task force uh, provided to the attorney general's office and which is actually being translated into legislation, I'm happy to say. Um, the, probably the biggest takeaway from the task force is the way that search warrants will now be uh, monitored, tracked, and ultimately reviewed, something that we haven't had in the Commonwealth uh, really ever um, at a central level. Um, the search warrant process now is, is, or at least up until uh, last year, was really broken down by, by counties. All the records for search warrants, if they were kept at all, were kept at the county level, and there was no central way to track those warrants uh, from Frankfurt. You couldn't, for example, determine how many warrants were executed in a particular county because the clerks in those counties might not always keep copies of warrants that were requested uh, uh, or those that were executed. And then the larger counties that did keep records, uh, they would be kept in different places, some in the ombudsman's office, some with the clerk's office, some the individual judges kept copies of the warrants that, that they signed. But there was no central uh, method or procedure that was used to say, this is how we're going to treat warrants consistently throughout the Commonwealth. Well, with the task force, we have that now. The way that search warrants will be processed 
is that they will be requested electronically. They'll be part of an electronic database the same way that uh, arrest warrants and uh, different types of domestic violence petitions are, are requested electronically. We'll know who the judges were that were approached uh, for, for the execution of search warrants. Uh, we'll have copies of the affidavits that were submitted available. Um, and we'll have a database that actually tracks by zip code down to the zip code level uh, where search warrants are being requested and executed. And understand both of those criteria now will be recorded, not just the warrants that are authorized, but all the warrants that are requested. And we'll have a way to track that centrally. So that way we know whether there's particular communities that are being over policed um, or under policed for, for that matter. Um, the other thing is we're, we're talking about having a periodic uh, review process, um, either twice a year, you know, every six months or annually, uh, where you have a statewide committee that comes back and reviews the search warrant process to make sure that the recommended changes are having an effect. Uh, so I, I will tell you that, you know, for all the criticisms that, that the AG received, this is one of the things I think he can be proud of. He, I, and I say this as a Democrat. I think he could actually be proud of the fact that this search warrant task force was put in place and that these recommendations are going to have a real effect on the way search warrants are, are applied, tracked and executed throughout the Commonwealth. Is the handling of that money that was first given out, is, is, is there anything sketchy around that? Well, I, I will tell you that that's at the center of, uh, of what really is a national debate about what the role of black of the black lives matter organization has been versus the goals uh, and intent of the movement and the, dis the difference between those, what the organization is focused on, what it is actually done versus what the people who drive the mo the movement wanted to see. Um, you know, there's this real question of whether the organization benefited itself as opposed to the marginalized communities that they're supposed to be helping. Um, you, you've got leadership who's alleged to have gone and spent money on these, you know, what are essentially mansions. They're getting all these elaborate headquarter buildings, but they're not really helping the communities financially that were affected by much of the, the government action that Black Lives Matter as an organization was supposed to counter. So, so yeah, there's, there's, and, and it was well put earlier, there's a lot of questions about what happened with New York, um, whether or not they simply capitalized on what was a local issue and then used it toward their own financial purposes, um, and, and how that reflected on the, the larger movement itself whether it undercut the credibility of the movement. So, yeah, there, there are some real questions about that. And unfortunately, I think that's going to have an effect going forward. It's going to have an effect on how willing people are to put themselves uh, behind what are really important goals of protecting marginalized communities, but not trusting the leadership, uh, whether that is self-proclaimed leadership or leadership that is being forced upon us by members of the larger community. Uh, saying these people represent you. There, there's going to be a real question uh, going forward about how we unify our communities and, and move toward uh, what we want as fair and equal treatment. So, yeah, I think I think that has been a problem. Absolutely. Marcus. 
Yes, sir. And then I think the other part that we were talking about is is we talked about the the knock on the door and then what transpired after that. You know, I, in my conversation with the attorney general, I, I had said to him that the five or six seconds after that door opened, you know, they were both right and they were both based on the facts that they had, meaning that. You know, the uh, Mr. Walker was in his home. He was defending himself because he thought someone had broken into his home. So he was absolutely in the right spot to defend himself. But the police, once they entered the door, they were also in the right spot because they believed, based on the facts that they had, that they were being fired upon. So they returned fire. And so just in that five or six seconds, I think both sides were right. The problem is, is what got them to the door. And so what I saw is the city of Louisville acknowledge that there was a problem with how they got to the door and we've made some reforms and we've paid for that being wrong. And so I think that's where the, the disconnect comes is, is what happened in those five or six seconds after the door opened is why there was there wasn't a lot of movement from the attorney general's office in that respect. And that, that's the way I took it based on my conversations. And that's what I had said to him about why he missed the mark and how he uh, played that out in the public. Uh, I think if he'd have said something similar to that, then it would have been easier to, to move on. Yeah. And as a follow up, Attorney McGee, um, we talked about why did the, the city of Louisville and Mayor Fisher and you as an attorney, before they went to the grand jury, uh, he settled for $12 million. And you probably heard some of the scuttlebutt in the community. There's a lot of talk that there was some nefarious behavior that the, the attorney, Ben Crump, and his team were going to expose if they went to trial. And that's the reason um, the city of Louisville, before the grand jury, would even settle for $12 million which shocked everyone. It doesn't make any sense from from a lot of people's standpoint. Have you seen anything like that before? I mean, you're in a trial and you, you feel you're going to win. And before, you know, you just say, well, yeah, I'm going to give you $12 million. And it turned out there was no indictment of any officer, as Marcus said. Unfortunately, you know, um, in that five seconds, you know, they were fired on it. An officer was shot in the leg. So it's not like they were just fired on they actually wounded, you know, Walker wounded a police officer. So in that situation, usually the police have a right to return fire. And so why would the city settle for $12 million of our tax dollars before it even went to trial or there was any indictment even? We asked Ramon to, to sit on the, the attorney general's task force. And as I looked around, I thought, one, we got to have a criminal defense attorney that sits on that because they are on the other side of that often when it happens. And so that's why we asked him to, to represent, uh, to represent the NAACP on that, uh, on that task force. And he did an excellent job making sure, because he oftentimes, like I said, he'll be the one in the court challenging search warrants. So yeah, it was, it was about the, the, the $12 million giveaway in the Taylor yeah. case. Well, I, I will tell you, it, it took the legal community here by complete surprise. Um, it was something we've never seen before. No one understood it. Um, you know, it, it was a judgment whose size and brevity just took the community um, completely by surprise. And 
you know, I, I will tell you, being a, a resident, especially of the West End of Louisville, uh, that that giveaway had more to do with the fact that the city was looking at being burned to the ground mm. um, than it did anything having to do with with alleged nefarious information on on the mayor and others. It, it was simply a situation where the mayor knew he had to act quickly and the judgment had to be large enough to placate the community. And I should say certain portions of the community. Literally, when you walked up um, the West End of Louisville and downtown Louisville, they had completely isn't boarded up. Justice, though? Isn't that mob justice? Well, that's that's what it was. Uh, and, you know, I hate to say that, but when you're looking at entire sections of your community that are boarded up, and all these business owners putting out, we support Black Lives Matter when they probably had never heard of it before <laughs> on their businesses, right? That tells you something. Yeah. Right. And, and again, it was a situation not to put too fine a point on it, where the police were executing a search warrant on someone who was connected with a larger drug operation. Brianna Taylor, no, no offense here, but she was somebody who had been supporting Glover's drug activity in the local community for years. Yes. Yes. For years. And the day that they executed the warrant, the day they executed the warrant, remember Walker shot at a police officer and injured a police officer before the police started returning fire. So it, it wasn't a situation. It was not a situation where the police just decided to haphazardly go in and start shooting. They had authority to be there. They were there executing a warrant. And the guy that was in the house allegedly defending himself and his girlfriend was a marijuana dealer. That's that's what he was protecting. He thought he was protecting the house against people that were coming to steal what was in the house, not defending it against police officers. So, so you kind of have to back up and understand what actually happened. And then you can get a better perspective on, on why that $12 million verdict was crazy. Yeah, and didn't he also think, I mean, I heard his testimony was that he thought it was Jamarcus Glover breaking in to steal his pot or whatever. Right, right, that it was other dealers coming in. It wasn't a situation where they, they questioned that it might be the police executing a warrant. So, so, you know, this this is part of what we were talking about when I say we have to be really careful who we rally around. It shows the message to young ladies should be, be careful who you're hanging around with. You hang around with drug dealers and gangbangers. You know, there, you could be a victim of collateral damage. That's a powerful message should have gone out and should go out, but yet, you know, it's glossed over. And, you know, the other, the other issue too is where was the racism of all this? I mean, just, I mean, they're, they're, you know, the whole nation, this was a racial attack. Was there any evidence that it was racial based? You know, there may have been some, you know, what we'll see what the DOJ finds out about them lying or misleading information. But I don't no one's shown any one aspect of any racism involved. Well, the the to, to the extent that race was a factor, it was not a factor in terms of. Brianna Taylor's individual apartment. There, there was real evidence that connected that apartment to drug activity. That just, I mean, that's just a fact. People can believe it or not, but, but the evidence was there. Okay. If there was a racial aspect to it, it was the program that generated the warrants in the first place. And this, this was something that Sam Aguiar in his lawsuit really keyed on. 
It was how the what they called the Russell Neighborhood Development Project, or the Russell Area Development Project, impacted the the homes of people that lived in the marginalized community. And it was a it was an entire question of whether it was really gentrification that was being sponsored at the city um, city hall level. This idea that they would go in and gentrify entire neighborhoods, push out the people who had lived in those neighborhoods and use local law enforcement to do it. These warrants that were executed were part of that project. Mm. And of course, it, you know, disproportionately impacted black communities. Right. So when you looked at Sam Aguiar's complaint, the lawsuit. It, it, it was probably a 16 or 17 page document. Well, 80 percent of it dealt with this program, this Russell Neighborhood Development Program mm. and how it impacted the community. And then guess what? These warrants were executed as a result of theoretically trying to clear out these communities in order for to promote gentrification. So if there was a racial aspect, that was it. But it didn't have anything to do with Breonna Taylor individually. She was connected with Glover and had been for years. So, you know, I mean, that I forgot about that part. I, I actually forgot about that because I remember hearing about this stuff, this this part right there um, earlier on. And I totally forgot about that. And it, it just makes me think. So these guys, these lapdogs basically were happy to take that those warrants and go do what they what they do well it, it, it's a weird you, you know how they, they talk about politics make strange bedfellows right this, this is one of those situations where the police had evidence that there was criminal activity and and it was taking place in those communities and people who lived in the communities knew it i mean it was no secret right but the question was what motivated the, the desire of the government to go in and quote unquote help those communities. Was it the idea that they wanted to treat the marginalized communities like they do the more affluent, predominantly white communities, or was it simply to lay a path for gentrification? That, that was the debate. Exactly. And so I, and I, I asked Ramon this and I'm sure he'll remember it, that there was a time when I think there was still Louisville Police Department then went into an attorney's home and, and, and took her personal files out because they thought they could. That's right. That's right. And, 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 and you know, and the, and the fact is, right. It, it all the, the level of education and status meant nothing at that point. And, and, and that's what I'm saying. And, and not that that, that was a that was an attempt to teach her a lesson about about interfering with the police in the neighborhood because she would come out into the community and say you can't do that to my people and they targeted her specifically to try and scare her off and so there are two Americas that's been several years ago but it did happen Absolutely. right yeah we we actually yeah we actually brought a lawsuit for that and uh, the city settled with us but yeah it it happened and it really was uh, sending a message to her to say. You know, there's our authority and you're not in the position to interfere with it, even though she was doing the right thing as an attorney. Absolutely. And and I want to ask this question that uh, is, is coming from uh, the comments here. Um, you know, Adolph Tompkins, he says, what evidence uh, does this attorney have that Breonna Taylor was into drugs? OK, well, let, let's start. Um, back in 2015 or 2016, 
there was uh, a shooting that took place where the police found a body in a vehicle. Uh, the person that had been shot was the brother of a lieutenant that had worked in the uh, organization that Glover maintained. So he was the brother of one of his drug lieutenants. The person who rented that car was Breonna Taylor. She had rented that car. Flash forward to Jamarcus Glover being prosecuted for multiple drug cases, both possession and trafficking. When his property and they confiscated cell phones and other records. We lost you for a second, and the last thing we heard was property. Okay. Um, when when the police... Oh, can you hear me now? Yes, sir. Okay, when the police confiscated the property from Mr. Glover, when he was arrested on both possession and trafficking charges, uh, they confiscated cell phones, and then they ran the subscriber history on those cell phones. Guess who the cell phones belonged to? Breonna Taylor. Okay. When the police were when the police were trying to conduct background checks on Glover to find out the places where he'd been living, the places where he had been having uh, items sent to both mail and parcel delivery. One of the addresses that came up was Brianna Taylor's. Right. Which is what led to the search warrant that uh, caused her death in 2020. When the police police were doing the pre-warrant surveillance on the trap houses that were the subject of not one but three separate warrants, and yet and she, and she did it multiple times. Yeah, she did and it multiple times, and was that? transporting him back and forth to the trap houses. I mean, yeah. you know, guys, I understand we want to say guilt by association. No, she was part of his organization. Yeah. That's the reality. And for some reason, people want to, are wanting to resist that despite the evidence being there. We're not making this up. This, this is what happened. Yeah, th this conversation had to do with the fact that he was trying to let them know that he had money at two locations, one of them being Taylor's. And the girl who's on the phone had some concern about the fact that he was relying on Taylor's place. Um, to to hide and stow away some of the money that he was using to post bond and to pay his lieutenants. That that's what this conversation is about. So my understanding, attorney, too. So Rihanna's family and her mother and sister knew all this. They even were telling her for many many years not to be messing with Jamarcus Glover. So why do you think? I mean, it's they knew she was pretty heavily involved. So you know, now they're why, you know, obviously they weren't trying to get paid, but is that a little bit sketchy on their part? You know, and well, I, I think they 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 always try to emphasize the fact that she was not his go to girl, meaning she wasn't the person who was driving Glover's desire to be, you know, a mid-level or high level drug dealer. She was simply one of many people that he was using in the process. So, the, so they always tried to minimize her role and did try and tell her to avoid getting part, uh, in a, becoming a central part of his operation. Okay. The problem became when they held out that she was this innocent party who, who simply didn't know what was going on. That, yeah. that was just false. And, and it is false. And they, to this day, they're lying to the, 
to the city, to the state, to the nation, to the world. The reason it gets me pissed off is, you know, I got relatives in Japan and they all looking sideways at Louisville for for that very reason. Because the narrative is that totally innocent woman who was helping fight COVID patients, you know, was racially attacked by police officers and blah, blah, blah. And it turns out none of that is true. And it's tragic that she got shot. But, you know, if it, Kenneth Walker hadn't shot the police officer, none of this would have happened. And, you know, yeah, it's cause and effect. And it doesn't justify her, Her, you know, it's, it's a tragedy. But, you know, when you play with fire, you have a good chance of getting burned. And that should well, be the message to young ladies. Well, don't, right. Well, that's what I learned about spending the social currency wisely that, yeah. yeah, you can certainly rally around a victim, but you better make sure they're a victim before you do that. And, and you know, you know, Taylor's family, they got caught up in a narrative, so they had no reason to, to say anything other than that, because that was the popular conception. And, 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 and that was strategic. Right. Well, who, but who spread that? conception the lawyers the media i mean it, it, it would make sense that that's that's strategic though i mean you, you gotta if, if i'm an attorney and i'm defending this i've got to figure out a way to minimize um the the negative uh whatever about my client right yeah but why would the media like you said this stuff is well known what um attorney mcgee is talking about this has been you know, this has been well known for many, many years now. And so our city was torn up to pieces. Like you said, the damage will probably never come back. Louisville's still downtown is struggling. And they knew all this, but they were afraid because of the mob justice, just like the mayor was afraid of the mob justice, you know, and that's not a good, you know, that's not a good thing to do to, to just give in to mob justice. Well, I, I think... I think it's a little bit more complicated than just saying mob justice. I mean, normally, and, and this is the first time that they haven't victimized a person, right? When when Michael Brown was killed in St. Louis, the first thing they did was talk about his past. And so maybe they learned some lessons. Maybe they learned some lessons from Michael Brown and all those other folks who they immediately tried to make the villain, even though they were the victim. And so maybe they hesitated not to make that same mistake. And so you can't just say that it was mob justice. Maybe the media learned just a little bit. There wasn't, or, there wasn't anything about any or, or, or maybe that mob justice that surrounded that $12 million um, uh, also, uh, uh, you know, put a little bit in the hands of uh, the media machine locally. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you can say that just the same, you know, and here, here's another big thing, because I talked to a lot of reporters, a lot of the rioters and were from Antifa and Black Lives Matter from out of town, and they, they, they flew them in and housed them in hotels, and they knew those were uh, some of the biggest instigators that were throwing rocks at the police, and they even said that one reporter said uh, these Antifa people, who are mostly European-American, they weren't African-American. They would be about ten rows deep behind the. Uh, oh yeah, front. absolutely. And then they threw rocks, and then they'd run away. And they were hoping the police would open fire or, you know, shoot someone out of anger. 
and they were trying that they did that um, very strategically, and they all knew about it, but they, you know, they wouldn't report on it. You know, they who, just, who, who's who's the day that you're talking about? They wouldn't rep- the reporters. Okay, they knew they they were there. You know, every day filming it, and they knew that these um, professional, you know. <clears throat> How do you know they knew? Well, they saw them. They saw them throwing the rocks, and they 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 talked to people there and said, "Is, is hey. that is that Boston coming out of you?" They saw them. They saw saw them. <laughs> and they were coming from around the country. They weren't Louisville people. A Louisville people well, are going to tear up their own city. Now, I, I agree with that. When 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 they were having the uh, protests here in my hometown. There were a couple of buses that pulled in. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we we didn't let them get off the bus. Uh, we told them that, that we didn't need them here, creating some problems where there were none. Not like that. And yep. so we we wouldn't let them get off the bus. So that those things do happen. I, I absolutely agree that there are outside advocates that can come and and then leave, and you're you're left with the mess they I absolutely believe that's true. And and when and when and when we're referring to mob justice, when that's being stated, then we're talking about the uh, holding over the potential, the potential holding over the city officials' head of information in exchange for that twelve million dollars. Is that what we're referring to when we say that? Because people are asking about that. Yes, Your Honor. I have uh, Mr. Swanigan and Mr. Bradshaw. This yeah, man is he, in court. Yeah, uh, Attorney McGee was saying the reason. Why would the why would the city settle twelve million dollars before it went to the grand jury? Yeah, because they were afraid of further um, injustice. But to, and and I like Mayor Fisher. He's a friend of mine, personal friend. I like him a whole lot. I, I, I always thought he was a great guy. He 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 could should have and could have t- called in the National Guard, which he never did. He the first night of the protest, you had two rot- protesters shoot two three other people the first night, not. Five days later, they should have brought in the National Guard and they could have squelched that whole thing. But they were trying to be politically correct and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And look what happened. And, you know, how I know this, too. This is another issue for another show. But, you know, they disbanded the Viper unit, the city of Louisville did, which went after these hardcore drug dealers and gangbangers. You know why? Because Black Lives Matter protested and threatened to do riots and stuff, and they caved, and all the police officers were very upset. It's one reason that Chief Conrad, you know, got before the record You know, well, got out of there because uh, unfortunately, Mayor Fisher and his people caved, and because they said, "Well, you know, you're arresting too many black people, basically, you know, in these." Um, these units so they disbanded it and the police were very upset and the block watch captains and the people in the neighborhood were very upset said why would you do this we want these hardcore criminals out of our community why would you Peter that that same that same logic that that same logic is only about the money and what they've been able to seize It's, 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 it's about the money and what they've been able to seize to further promote whatever special programs they have going. Uh, I don't know that those block captains, if they were upset, the next thing we'll be saying 
is that they wanted that enforcement. And then when somebody runs for office a little bit later on, they'll come back and say, well, you signed on to that, putting our people in jail. But you're saying they want it. And I think it's kind of the same way. Yeah, they want safe neighborhoods. They don't. I, I don't I don't disagree that they want safe neighborhoods. What I'm saying is, is that you say you want it and then you're upset by the method in which we give it to you. Yeah, that's true. Then you come back and complain that, well, we want you to crack down and make a neighborhood safe, but that resulted in a whole lot of people going to jail for marijuana or drugs or whatever. And then we say, oh, that's the crime bill all over again. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is a balance for sure. You know, uh, it's important for people to know where they where they are when the police bring them in. Uh, for questioning or anything else and even though we say remain quiet and wait for your attorney hearing it directly from the attorney probably makes more sense absolutely could you speak to that uh attorney mcgee well there, there are I, there are kind of several moving parts to what marcus talked about but but basically you know what he's saying is accurate you you want to be able to preserve and protect the other rights that you have as a defendant anytime you're interacting with law enforcement officers. Um, the search warrant process is simply one of, of many Fourth and Fifth Amendment issues that you have to address. So you have basic things. You know, the officers come out to execute a warrant, let them do their job. They ask you questions, you give them your identification, stop talking. Do not say anything that's ultimately going to implicate you or tie you to whatever's being investigated. So a lot of these things are, are things that people know historically. Um, they, they know these things from, from common practice. They know it from popular media. It's just a matter of being aware of your circumstances and trying to do the best thing that you can do to protect your, your, your future interests.